0: You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace D.C. Network in Northeast D.C. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Every evening after we eat dinner as a family, Vanessa and I begin the challenging task of trying to get kids to sleep. I'm sure many of you can relate. Do I have any witnesses out here about the challenges? Uh Uh-huh, all right. We get them to put on their pajamas and get them to brush their teeth, but on most nights, they simply do not want to go to sleep. They resist rest. And they are well-practiced at avoiding bedtime. And over time, we have realized that each of the children has their own specific method for how they avoid rest. One child brings a stack of lengthy books to the bed. And after Vanessa or I read one of those books to them, they ask if we could read the whole stack. And when that doesn't work, they begin to raise concerns about robbers breaking in and begin to hatch plans about how we can secure the house a little better. Another very spiritual child wants to extend family devotions and family worship into the wee hours of the night, asking biblical and theological questions. Now, at first, these questions are sincere. But after a while, I start to get the sense that it's one elaborate ploy to stay away from sleep. Dad, tell me about predestination. Right? Uh huh. And then there are other children who frenetically run around like crazy people because they are obviously possessed by demons. Now, as the struggle wears on, Vanessa and I are painfully aware that these children need sleep. They need sleep, but they're resistant. They are overtired, and we know that there is nothing more that they need in this moment than to go to sleep. But getting that message through to them feels very difficult. But you know what I've realized over the years, right? You already see how transparent this illustration is. The Lord can sympathize with those parents who struggle to get their kids to sleep because the Lord also has children Who resist rest. We, as God's restless children, are very well practiced in this resistance. In place of rest, we work out our self-protective plans to try and secure our lives. We have faulty spiritualities that cause us to devalue rest and to overvalue productivity. And all too often, we run around like crazy people. Because we think that's really the only way to be. We think this is the only option to run around like crazy people. God knows that we're overtired and in desperate need of rest. And it's often challenging for that message to get through to you and I. It's a challenge to get us to see it. But here's the deal. It doesn't have to be this way. There is a different way of being in the world. A more faithful, healthy way Of being. So this morning, we're going to come to the next psalm in our series in the Psalter. And this series is called Songs in the Key of Life, for those of you who haven't been here. And what we've been essentially uh, proposing is that the Psalter addresses all different kinds of experiences in life. It doesn't matter where you find yourself, what emotional state you're in, what kind of circumstances are swirling around you. God has something to say to you in your particular experience of life, in your particular emotional state. And this morning we're gonna see that the Lord has something to say when we are weary, worn out, and just plain old tired. God has something to say to the restless. So we open up to Psalm 127 in order to consider two points understanding our resistance to rest and overcoming. Our resistance to rest. We are going to look at these two points, and let's turn to our first one, understanding our resistance to rest. Psalm 127 is one of the psalms that is known as the Psalms of Ascent, and that's Psalms 120 through 134. They are psalms of ascent. What does that mean? These were psalms that the pilgrims sang as they journeyed from to Jerusalem for feast days like Passover and Pentecost. They would sing these songs on the journey back home. And they're called Psalms of Ascent for a literal reason, because Jerusalem was the highest city in the area. You had to actually ascend a hill. But there's also a metaphorical reason for calling these Psalms of Ascent. As the people aspire to live their lives upward... Toward God, they viewed the movement of their lives, the entirety of their journey, as a returning home, an ascending home. In other words, these Psalms of Ascent were intended to remind Israel of who they were and where they were headed. And it's important to take our cues on the value of rest from Scripture rather than our cultural environment. It's critical that we see the importance of rest in our life before God and in our journey home to God. Because from the very beginning of God's story, God meant to to really communicate to us the importance of rest. Because after all the amazing things that God created, on the seventh day, God rested. And it seems strange, right? God's God. why, Why would God rest? I think that God was trying to get across to us the importance of it, the the, the significance of it. It's almost like when you as a parent lay down with your child to get them to bed. It's something similar what God the Father does in creation. He kind of rests, he kind of lays down, he said, now, now, come on, rest with me. There's something really important about this message. And as you continue through the biblical storyline, one of the most significant Pillars of understanding in the whole story of, of God's people is in the Exodus. And the Exodus is framed as an unraveling of creation. It is decreation. And what you see happening is that God's people are enslaved, and rest is no longer an option because of their enslavement. And after a little while of Moses agitating, it gets even worse. And the worst part of their sojourn is when Pharaoh tells Israel to make more bricks with no straw. In other words, he wants more productivity, but he doesn't give them the resources for the productivity. This is like sort of the like, like one of the pinnacles of their suffering and their crying out. And in many ways, this maps onto our experience in life. Because oftentimes we find ourselves under the thumb of some master that's making us feel like we cannot rest and that we have to make more bricks and no straw, no resources. This is part of the biblical storyline, and this is, this is something that is always kind of running in the, the background of Israel's life and faith because this was one of the most significant points at which their faith was stretched. They were called to rest And one of the great gifts that God gives after he delivers his people from the Exodus, what does he do on Mount Sinai? He gives the Ten Commandments. And then one of those commandments is a command to rest. They will return to rest. You are to honor the Sabbath, rest, and keep it holy, set apart, distinct, special. So right from the very beginning of God's story, God is saying, rest is not just a good idea. You need it, and I demand it of you. Because everything that I demand is about your good. It's about your flourishing. It's not arbitrary. The God who made us is the one who calls us to rest. Verse 1, if you take a look at it, it captures two important concerns that lead us to restlessness. You could even frame them up as idols. Take a look at the text. The text says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, what we can see here is a picture of productivity in work. The long hours at the office. The strenuous pursuit of zeroing out your inbox the frenzied dash to cram as much into your day as you can so that you have something to show for it. Never mind the underlying question of show to who, for what purpose? If we dare to ask that question, the answers are often shockingly misguided and life-stealing. God is nowhere to be found in this mode of thinking on the matter. The idol of productivity does not give you permission to rest. If productivity is Pharaoh in your life, you'll never have rest. The psalmist is offering a sort of caution. There is a godless way of approaching work and productivity, but that way is vain, useless, and empty. But then there's a second truth that comes through in in this verse. He says, unless the Lord watches over the city the watchman stays awake in vain. Here we can see a picture of our endless efforts to find security. Right? We may not watch over the city, but we watch over our bank accounts, and we watch over our material possessions. We watch over our careers. We fearfully watch over our children. The assumption we hold is framed in a question. If I don't look out for myself and my stuff, then who else will? God is nowhere to be found in our thinking on the matter. The idol of security does not give us permission to rest. Again, the psalmist offers a sort of caution. There's a godless way of seeking security, but that way is vain, useless, and empty. And then the psalmist offers a sort of summary of what he's saying. And we might Put that summary like this. It is pointless to burn the candle at both ends. But listen to the poetic and convicting way that the psalmist puts it in verse 2. He says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Mm. Just sit with that one and meditate on it for a little while, and it will light you up. It will light you up. Now, imagine the Jewish pilgrims singing this to each other on their journey home, on their way back home. I think it's a powerful image that is magnified in our cultural moment. The pilgrims on their journey home singing, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. They're singing this to one another. They're rehearsing it to one another. This is urgent for our cultural moment, and here's why. Our sinful resistance to rest is not just an individual problem. It's a corporate and communal problem, y'all. Our individual resistance to rest has harmful effects on our community's journey home. And this is one of the reasons why we confess our sins together as a community every time we gather on the Lord's Day. You don't believe me? If you have more than one child and one of those children is just strenuously resisting rest, it keeps the other children restless. It's hard for them to go to sleep. It's not until everyone goes to sleep together that you actually see the kind of health that is needed for those kids. We have a problem, not only individually, but corporately, because our actions reinforce particular habits in our community. That's the way social realities work. What we do individually impacts what we do and how we are together. Together, we have created a culture of restlessness. And it's not just out there in the culture, it's in here. Just like my kids foment restlessness in one another at the end of a long day, we too foment restlessness in one another. How do we do that? Well, sometimes it's by boasting of our long work hours with a sense of pride. And what we're saying to others is, you should be more restless like me. And shame on you if you're not working like this. Right? That's culture-forming kind of thinking and acting. Together, we have made an idol of productivity, judging other people based upon how much they have accomplished, making other people feel their inadequacy. And again, this is, this is subtle, but it's often done it, when we're boasting in our restlessness rather than repenting of it. Together, we have made an idol of security, often inspiring fear in one another rather than Godward trust and confidence. When we worry out loud together rather than praying with and for one another over the issue that's troubling us and speaking gospel truth into that thing, we foment the complaintive spirit. We inspire fear in and in a deeper sense of need to secure things in my life by spreading our worry. Much of this stems from. Modern worldliness. Modern worldliness. One of the central truths that emerges from these verses is the fact that our gifts, our talents, our strengths, our intelligence, our relational skills, and our charisma are really of no lasting effect in our lives and ministries if the Lord is not building. And where our modern, late modernity, our modern culture really has influenced us is that we actually do believe that our gifts and our talents and our strengths and intelligence and relational skills and charisma are enough to really build something. That's a deception, according to this text. And this is one of the points where a Western sociocultural orientation really puts us at a disadvantage when it comes to rest, specifically. Whether we realize it or not, we have been deeply formed by the cultural axioms of late modernity. And we find ourselves believing a whole host of lies that are in the cultural waters of our age. It really boils down to worldliness and worldliness is simply an interpretation of life that thinks that God is, is really not necessary or involved when it comes to the business of life. It excludes the reality of God from the business of life. And if God is not involved, then it all depends on us and falls on our shoulders with a crushing heaviness. The primary framework that makes workaholism and restlessness seem sensible and admirable is worldliness. Now, you might say, I'm a Christian. I know that God's involved. I know that God is present. Yes, you do, but remember that prayer, I believe but help my unbelief. Because you constantly, and I constantly, live in this position like, I believe this truth. But help my unbelief. Yes, I believe that God's involved. Okay, that's good. But then why do you freak out when things happen? Why do you go into panic mode? Right? Because there are moments where that truth becomes eclipsed by the circumstances or by our own pursuits and ambitions. And worldliness develops into what one of my mentors called the killer peas. The killer peas. Performance, perfectionism, and people-pleasing. Performance, perfectionism, and people-pleasing. This is what worldliness develops into. Performance, enacting the right practices with a heart that is disengaged, an inner life that is cold and dead. This is not good. You know why? Because if you, if you remember back to the Gospels, there were some people uh, that Jesus identified. And he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We preached sermons in your name. And we cast out demons in your name. And we performed many miracles in your name. We did all kinds of ministry. And Jesus will turn to them and say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Rest is elusive when you spend so much effort performing the image that you want to project to the world. You know how much work it takes to be an actor? I can tell you because that's what I was vocationally before I came into the ministry. Well, imagine that you feeling like you're on stage 24-7 for all the people around you. And you have to keep up the character you're projecting. And you're not that actual character, but you got to keep up the appearances. That is exhausting. Perfectionism, a paralyzing conviction that makes it hard to do anything unless it can be done perfectly. It makes us hypercritical of ourselves and it makes us hypercritical of other people. It leads to exhaustion and emotional dysfunction. Rest is elusive. When your emotional bandwidth is consumed with overanalyzing, second-guessing, and fear of making a mistake. That's a restlessness that is produced in us. And then finally, people-pleasing. Doing our work to impress others. Or to assuage others that might be upset with us. Or to satisfy others to the neglect of God's glory and Christian principle. But again... Rest is elusive when you're spending energy trying to mind-read people. And when you're trying to work so hard to avoid displeasing people. And when you're pulling out all the bells and whistles to impress people. This is exhausting. And if these killer peas resonate with you at all, performance, perfectionism, and people-pleasing, God has a word for you. And it's a word of good news. There is a way. To return to wholeness. There's a way to return to our calling as God's countercultural resting community. And that comes in the gospel, which brings us to the second point overcoming our resistance to rest. How do we overcome our resistance to rest? There's a negative and a positive, okay? The negative, let's look at that first. The text reveals the unbelief of workaholism and restlessness plainly. And you know what the text says about it? It is in vain. It's pointless. It's useless. It's inconsequential. No matter how we try to silver line our disobedience, workaholism and restlessness do us no good, and they ultimately do not get us ahead. We say, well, you know, I I know know I'm working a little bit too much, but at least I know. Don't try to silver-line disobedience. It doesn't bring good. It doesn't bring flourishing. It doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring the fullness for which you long. And ultimately, it doesn't give you what you're actually after. You're chasing your tail. That's the negative. Restlessness is vain. Workaholism is pointless. But then there's a positive. Verse 2, for he gives to his beloved sleep. That is the good news. How do we overcome our resistance to rest? It is largely shaped by your perspective on how God views your rest. Because sometimes you might draw the conclusion that because your friends smile on your rest and think you're a lazy bum. God must. But that's not exactly the truth. <laughs> it's not the truth at all, in fact. God loves to give his beloved sleep. This psalm calls God's people to look at the ways of the Lord, for he gives rest. And this truth comes through most wonderfully and most powerfully and most beautifully in the gospel. The more we find ourselves trusting in the person and work of Christ, the more that we will find ourselves resting in his love such such that we don't work for love, we work from love. That's a big difference. Resting in God's love means that you're not working for God's love. If I do this, then maybe God will love me more. I did this thing it probably made God mad, so let me do this thing that will get him on my you know, good side again. I'll get on his good side again. No, you don't work for love as a Christian. You work from love. Love strikes first. And because you are loved like you are, you can work hard. You can be productive, but at the appropriate times you can also rest. You'll find yourself resting in his grace such that failures don't make you anxious to balance the scales or to self-atone. We'll find ourselves resting in his generous provision such that we don't burn the candle at both ends out of a scarcity mentality or fear of running out. That's what some people are accumulating so much for. They're afraid that they're going to run out, that God's somehow going to leave them hanging. But the gospel frees you from that fear so that you can rest. We'll find ourselves resting in his sovereign rule such that we don't expend our efforts desperately trying to control things. We'll find ourselves resting in his fatherly goodness such that feelings of insecurity and frantic actions that follow it will begin to die. For Christians, anxious toil reveals a partial gospel. It's a partial gospel. Yes, God gets me in, but I got to keep myself in through my hard work. Jesus came into the world to save me, but he's really absent now, so I have to control things. But we have to realize that the rest of the gospel is the rest of the gospel. Do you understand? It's a partial gospel if you do not have a gospel that leads you and calls you to rest as a regular feature of your limited human life. But the rest of the gospel is the rest of the gospel. Yes, The gospel is good news of what God has done in Jesus to rescue us from sin and to give us new hearts and motives and to give us a doxological drive for God's glory and spiritual energy to to do the work of the kingdom and to seek the good of our neighbors. But the gospel also gives spirit-empowered, gospel-shaped capacity to rest, to put work down, to enjoy God's peace, and to see what's at the bottom of our vain, exhausting pace and to let it go because through union with Christ the Lord has already given us the things that we're working so hard to try and acquire. You realize that? If you're burning the candle at both ends, if you if you have a habit of staying up super super late to get work done, you need to hear this passage. You need sleep. And the Lord loves to give it. And if you make a habit of waking up super early in the morning, just cutting your sleep hours, just to try and get a little bit of extra work done, just to get ahead for the workday. You need to hear this. He gives rest to his beloved. That's what God wants for you. And what you're really after in those things, what are you after when you stay up late to try and get work done? You're either working because you're afraid of what people might say about you if you don't get it done, managing your image, or you're afraid that somehow, you know, You're not going to make as much money, and then you're going to put yourself in a vulnerable situation if you don't work those extra hours. What are you after at the bottom of it? And if you get down to the bottom of it, what I'm saying to you is the thing that you're really after is already given by God. Are you after money for the sake of security, and that's why you work so many hours? Well, guess what? Good news. God's got your security. Are you after acceptance as a member of your work team? If I work really hard and, and I overwork and I, and I go above and beyond, above and beyond, then I'll be accepted. Then I'll be valued. Then people will say nice things about me. Guess what? There's nothing more wonderful that could be said about you than you are the beloved of God. Nothing. Nothing more precious than that. And there's nothing like being affirmed by God. And when you are affirmed by God in the gospel— You don't need the affirmations of everybody else. Listen, if you can only get the affirmations of your coworkers or friends upon the sacrifice of rest, that is not worth having. Those affirmations are not worth getting. Let them let them talk bad about you. Or just not say anything about you. But live into the rest of God. It's so good. And ultimately, here's the reality. You can't keep up that charade for long. You're going to pay the piper one way or the other. Either you're going to crash or things are going to fall apart in your life. It may not be now. It may not be in a year. It may not be in five or ten years. But it will come because you are a limited human being. You have boundaries. And if you don't honor those boundaries, if you make a habit of dishonoring those boundaries you will experience the consequences of it. And I'm saying there will be eternal consequences so much as I'll say there will be physical, this-worldly consequences for ignoring your limitations as a human being and, and avoiding rest. What we see here is that the Lord gives what human productivity cannot give. And the Lord protects what human security measures cannot protect. Do you remember what Augustine said when he said... Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. This was his prayer and his confession. But you need to understand that rest is not a reward for a job well done. It's not a reward. And if you think of it as a reward for a job well done, if you don't think you did a good job, you won't rest. It's a gift. It is a gift. It's not a reward for accomplishing tasks. Rest is not payment for checking off your to-do list. It is a gift to be received entirely of grace. Rest is our inheritance because God who made us loves us and he knows what we need and he delights to give the rest that we need. Now, I know that your employer may give you more paid time off as a reward for your years of service. I get that. But God gives rest to his beloved freely because he is good. But look at the other move of the psalmist in this text. How do we overcome our restlessness? Take take a look at this. In this compact poetic line, the psalmist directs us to the ways of the Lord, but he also reminds us of who we are, beloved. You know, if you don't feel like you already are loved is very difficult to rest. Love is something that human beings just really can't do without. And we'll do anything we can to secure it if we don't feel like we have it. But God's message to his people is You are my beloved. I want to give you sleep. Will you lay hold of the gift that I'm extending to you? Because you're loved. You are loved. You are loved not because of your achieving and acquiring. God's love is not a reward for our productivity and hard work. Do you love your children because of how well they do in school or because of how well they do their chores? Do you? Do you? No, of course not. Yeah, you're like, oh, don't ask me this stupid, obvious question. Right. Well, if you give yourself the credit for loving your kids like that, why is it so difficult to give the father the credit for loving his kids like that. He does not love you as a reward for your productivity. No, you are the beloved. That's the first major truth of your life. Your love for your children began before they ever even came into this world. The minute that that pregnancy test showed the lines, your heart already swelled with love, and you need to remember that God loved you before the foundations of the world before you had an opportunity to do any work or think about doing any work, before you had the strength to accomplish any work, he loved you. And that is a freeing thing. That is a freeing truth. Because God loves us, he builds. And because God loves us, he watches over. Because he loves us, he gives us sleep rest and in the ordinary repenting of your restlessness it can look as simple as shutting down your email after a certain hour or leaving your phone in the lockbox after a certain hour without knowing the code or reducing your daily social media minutes it could mean that you start to incorporate a nap into your rhythms And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Yes. Do you know that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take your butt to sleep? (laughs) That's just fact. It's true. Sometimes that's the most spiritual thing you can do is just rest. But it takes practice, y'all. It takes practice to rest. And it takes community to rest. So why don't we just make this agreement with one another? That we are going to try and encourage one another more toward rest than through tireless productivity. Even tireless Christian productivity. Remember, unhealthy spiritualities can also lead you to restlessness. We should be a mutually reinforming community where the truths of God are, are, they are reaffirmed in our hearts through our time in community with one another. Let's affirm one another. Let's challenge one another. If you see a member of your community just living a restless, anxious, never stopping life, one of the most loving things you can do for them is not to cheer them on in that restlessness, but to encourage them to pause, to slow down, and to be still. And if they say, oh, I can't, I don't have time for that then it's time to put in some work with them. You, tell, you, you mean to tell me that the way that God has your life set up right now, he has not given you permission to rest? You mean to tell me that God's going to somehow let you fall off of the map or you know, go off of the radar if you choose to rest now instead of anxiously spin away? I refuse to believe that. That is contrary to the truth of God's word. And yes, there are seasons in which we have a little bit more activity than at other times. Seasonality, yes, I get that. But as a regular rhythm of your life, are you paying attention to rest? There's been this sweet reality as our kids have gotten older. As our kids have gotten older, uh, as they've gotten more mature, uh, the older kids not only are a little bit more willing to go to bed, but they also actually help the younger ones and encourage them to go to sleep. And I think that in a mature community of faith, that's exactly what the mature among us will find themselves doing. Are you mature in the faith? Do you consider yourself mature in the faith? Then be a resting Christian. And encourage your brothers and sisters to be resting Christians. Because one of the most beautiful ways that we bear testimony to the truth of the gospel, one of the ways that we bear witness in a countercultural way in a restless world is to be a resting people. Such as people were saying, how can you rest like that? And you said, I'm glad you asked, right? You hit him with that. I can rest because of who he is. I can rest because of what he's done. I can rest because of who he is for me. I can rest because of what I know he's doing. I know he's at work. I know he will not fail me. I know he will provide for me. I know he's a keeper. I know he's in control. And I know that he's good. So I can lay it down. That is the beautiful good news of the scriptures when it says that God never sleeps nor slumbers. So you can. That's good news. And I pray that as our community develops, we will be able to reveal this full gospel in which God not only energizes our lives and rescues our lives, but he gives rest to his beloved So let us receive this good gift by faith and encourage one another to do the same. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.